the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is former Vice President of Avon and Fortune 500 consultant Deborah Himsel. Uh, this morning, we're going to be discussing her new book, Beauty Queen, Inside the Reign of Andrea Young. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. Great to be here. First question is, why this book and why now? <laughs> well, um, yeah, great question. Um, I have over 25 years of experience in the leadership development space, and one of the things that I found is storytelling is just such a powerful learning tool. And the story of Andrea Jung, Avon Products, Ding Dong, Avon Calling, everybody knows door-to-door sales. And she was the CEO from 1999 to 2012. And what's a compelling story about it is that she went from being one of the most admired CEOs on every magazine to when she left being one of the most reviled. And I was really curious about what went wrong, and I wanted to understand what we can learn from it. And so the book is really, it's divided into two parts, and one has the Avon story, and the second part are really broader leadership lessons for everyone, and everyone at all levels. And right now, women's leadership is really continuing to be a buzz. They're Mary Barra, GM in the news, and so especially from a, a woman leader, I really wanted to understand the role that gender played, but more importantly, what we can learn from her story. Her story, I keep saying her story, her story, her story, because it really is a her story and not really a he story. There are similarities, I think, as you point out in the book, between this kind of a trajectory, say, for a man or for a woman, but there are some really special parts that really have to do with being a woman and being uh, the head of a major corporation. Wouldn't you say? I mean, I kind of like to focus on the women's part because I think that's really, to me, um, having read the book, that really does seem like the issue. Yeah, and there are parallels and similarities to both, but, um, and, and I think one thing, I really don't think that gender played a role in her fall. In fact, I think that if she would have been a man, that the board probably would have, you know, kind of told her to step down a little bit, um, a little bit sooner, but I think um, being the head of a women's company, there were some uniquenesses around that. Let's start in the beginning, though, because you yeah. talk about what she did right and mm-hmm. what she did wrong. So in the beginning, we have to do, assume that she was doing something right to be able to be the, named as the head of this major co- 
Corporation, Avon. So Yes, and, and I think that's one of the lessons learned for really everybody, but especially women, is um, she before she got the, the role of CEO, she had actually joined Avon as, the, um, as really a consultant. She took on a high-visibility project, which got her notice. She delivered it on time, actually before it was due, with some very, very risky results um, that, that uh, basically said that Avon at that time shouldn't go into retail. But it got her noticed, and then she was brought in as the head of marketing, and she made some bold decisions. She took some risks, and she got noticed by not only the, the CEO, but actually by the board in taking on something that was very risky. And then she was uh, later on promoted to CEO. And in the early years, I mean, the one thing that you cannot take away from, from Andrea is she just is a marketing genius. And she basically took a brand that was old and outdated, and some of the research had said that Avon was really more known as the grandmother's brand, not the mother's, but the grandmother's, but took an outdated brand, contemporized it. When she took over, the morale was really bad in the organization. She mobilized um, people. She plowed a lot of money into R&D, really wanting to have the best products at the most affordable price for women. Double-digit growth, uh, um, double-digit growth for really about the first six years. So she did so many things right, and uh, can't take that away from her. All right. So you, you described her as a marketing genius. Do you think, and that's what sort of propelled her into the into the boardroom and and got you know got her this mm-hmm. position. Um, is the reason, or one of the reasons, perhaps? Uh, that had to do with her downfall was that she was not able to expand her corporate genius, that she's really a marketing genius, but it takes more than that to be... Yes, yeah, and and that's one of the key things that I found out of uh, the research that I did for the book Beauty Queen was that she really, when you look at it, she had only held marketing jobs and she came up through the marketing ranks which early on, as I mentioned, helped her to thrive. But in the last part of her tenure, it was really the operations side that really bogged her down. And there were logistics and order fulfillment problems, IT problems, etc. And going back to one of the lessons learned for women is that oftentimes women get kind of, I don't want to say trapped, but they get too narrowly focused into marketing or human resources or sometimes traditionally female-oriented tracks. Why do you think that is? Because that's one of the topics that, yeah, yeah. that I wanted to discuss, this idea of over-specializing is kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah. Is that because women feel that they have to be perfectionists in whatever they do? So if you focus in and stick to one area, it's easier to perform as a perfectionist in that area, and it's more difficult to maybe expand the, uh, your, I guess, your, your ability to run a business in different areas. You, you talk about passion and perseverance. It seems like she had that, and that anyone needs that to be yeah, a CEO. Yeah, everybody of a needs that, and yeah. that's a strength. Um, yeah. I, well, I think traditionally, and there's a lot of research that kind of points this out, that um, you know, women kind of gravitate and have natural skills in in like the again, I go back to the marketing, the human resource, even sometimes sales. And I'm not sure if it's perfectionism, but 
what at least some of the clients that I've worked with, we find that in order to really prepare for some of the larger roles, you need experience in some of these roles where you have actual responsibility for a profit and loss statement or you have some finance skills and that oftentimes women may not either be looked at to take on a more non-traditional role, let's say supply chain, or they may be so good at what they're doing, let's say the marketing role, that then they get too high up in the corporate ladder and it's difficult to move them more horizontally to another role. Or in some of these big organizations, it's hard to to rotate women, let's say, to to move either internationally, that's very difficult, especially if you have a family, or even domestically, if you have a spouse and trying to get everybody to find a job. So I think it's a mixture of things, either getting out of the traditional kind of more gender gender-oriented role, or just being able to move to get that role that's going to prepare you for, for a, a bigger role. Well, you talk about the glass cliff. How does that fit into all of this? Yeah, which is um, the glass cliff, and it, it's actually a term that some uh, UK researchers coined to really, and they had done a lot of research in the UK, but to explain their findings that sometimes organizations who are facing a crisis or a turnaround, they may be more likely to select a woman. And, and they said, well, potentially they might want a woman in that role because she may have more collaborative skills, maybe better in the press, but what their research said was that the woman could be more expendable so that if things don't go well, she's maybe the sacrificial lamb to be pushed aside and then the man comes in on his white horse to fix everything. And so there's been a lot of questions raised potentially if, if Mary Barra, the head of GM, if potentially she's been set up as a, as a scapegoat and she's on this glass cliff. And it's um, what I found interesting, though, is that to what can this mean for kind of every woman and it's to really go in with your eyes wide open and if there's a crisis situation know what you're getting yourself into and potentially don't let the allure of a great position which I think you know this could be you know say oh my gosh this is the position that I dreamed about but potentially you know go in and say gosh is there are there more things beneath this that maybe it's a great position but you know, what are my chances of success? And so they may want you to clean up the mess, but is this really going to benefit you in the long run? So it's one of these terms that's being uh, once again raised as more women take on these really high visibility assignments. Glass cliff. And yeah. I have to admit that I hadn't heard of that before reading your book. But I'm wondering, do you think that that's kind of a tr- traditionally true of all minorities? They set you up. You may be the first, you know, 50 years ago, the first Jew, then the first mm-hmm. black, and then, and you're, it's kind of a setup, you know, and here you are, you have this great position, but boy, if you don't do well, you're done. And you're not going to have a lot of people rooting for you, you know, once we kick you out because uh, you weren't able to accomplish what we thought you were going to be able to accomplish. Is that kind of the same thing? Yeah, it, it is. And, and I, yeah, it's one of the things that I'm just not sure about because they, they have a lot of research in the U.K. that really supports this. But the U.S. research is a little iffy. Um, but I think your, your point is well taken. And one of the things that, that I 
that I wonder is if maybe it's well-intentioned about some of these assignments, but maybe the person really wasn't ready for them. So potentially, it's, I guess when you look at it, though, it could be a setup one way or another, because if they're not ready, they really shouldn't be given the assignment in the first place, because if it's really a difficult situation, they may end up being a failure anyway. All right, let's talk about now um, specifically Andrea Jung, Mm -hmm. like her personal characteristics, because you go into that in detail in the Mm -hmm. book. I mean, you describe her as a private person in a public setting, and that may have been one of her difficulties. Can you elaborate on that or led to her downfall? Yeah, um, one of the things that that I talk about and spent a lot of time with is, is what happens when people are under stress, because when we're under stress, we lose that ability to kind of keep ourselves in check. And for the most part, um, Andrea was more of a, an, I'll say, an introvert, and she liked to, to um, you know, kind of have a small group of people around her. And one of the things that I talk about in my book, Beauty Queen, is that in the second half of her tenure, when it just seemed like everything was going wrong, she really just kept her close group of advisors around her, and I don't think that she was really open and receptive to the bad news, and or this close group of advisors were really more acting as, as like her cheerleaders, and they were kind of just trying to prop her up, tell her what, she, what she, they thought she wanted to hear, and for a leader, it's so critical to really hear that bad news, to know what's going on. We look at GM and the crisis that they're facing, and, you know, I mean, at how many years they, they didn't really want to know about the bad news. And the second thing about more of her kind of private person is also when things started crashing down around her, she just, it was so unbearable for her that instead of going out and kind of rallying people around her or kind of talking about the what was going on in the news about Avon and potential takeover targets, she went and retreated into her office and just wanted to, to work things out for herself. And one of the real lessons is in times of crisis, people really need their leaders. They need their leaders out in front, letting them know what's going on and rallying the troops, so to speak. So some of those things about your personality, especially under stress, you really have to understand what those are and and what you really need to do to overcome them, especially in times of crisis. Yeah. So you don't want to hide. You don't want to isolate. You have to be out there and you have to be a leader in a crisis. And I think another thing that you, uh, one of the other things that you had said and maybe you're just alluding to that now, that she had a group of yes men or yes women around her and she needed to get rid of some of those and get some people who took a hard look at what was happening and to advise her, different advisors. Yes. And particularly you mentioned one executive who she should have, and I forgot what her position was or his position, but who needed to be said goodbye to and wasn't, and that was also part of, uh, of, of her downfall. Well, yeah, and this is, um, I talk about the uh, former head of China um, in the China operations, and, and one of the threads in the, in the book is that these emerging markets, which China was and China is um, to a lot of companies today, they can be gold mines, but they can also be landmines. And there, you pick up the paper, and uh, so many companies right now, Walmart, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, and Avon, are facing charges of, of bribing government officials to further their business. And 
And this was one of the, the things the um, Avon just paid out um, and, and spent close to half a billion dollars on all these legal fees for bribery charges in China. And Andrea didn't know anything at all about what was going on in China with regard to bribery. But the trap that she faced was that she wasn't really more vigilant about kind of the details of what was going on in China. And the part of it was because the China business said he was achieving his results. And when leaders are achieving their results, sometimes you don't look at and dig underneath whatever else is going on. And this leader in China was known as not being a particularly strong people leader. He led by fear and intimidation, but he was achieving his results. And that's one of the lessons learned that I had and I hope that, that others will have with reading the book Beauty Queen is that you have to look beyond just the results. You have to look at how leaders are leading and how they're really leading both the business side as well as the people side. So he should have been gone long ago and that would have saved her a lot of heartache, I think. Yeah. How they're achieving those results. Exactly. The how is really just as important as the, as the what they're doing. And oftentimes it's so easy to just overlook that, especially in a, in a bad economy when you really are, are fighting for, for, um, for every dollar. How'd you come up with the title Beauty Queen? Oh, gosh, yeah. I was just in brainstorming. Um, I think part of it is that in, in, uh, if folks see the cover, um, Andrea Jung is just so beautiful. And part of her brand was um, always wearing designer suits. Every hair was in place. And plus, she was leading um, a multi-billion dollar beauty company. So it just uh, seemed an apt title. No one called her that inside, but uh, it just seemed like it was an apt title. Well, so now, Deborah, let's tell everybody, where is Andrea now? Yeah, and, um, you know, she, um, like the phoenix rising from the ashes, um, she uh, heads up a a not-for-profit called Grameen, uh, and she heads up the Americas, which they do microfinancing for um, for women entrepreneurs, especially ones that are, you know, just kind of having more of a tough time. And what I think is great, and another lesson, I think, for women all over is, do what you're passionate about and do what you love. And one of the things that I really saw here that Andrea was really passionate about women, women entrepreneurs um, with Avon having an earnings opportunity and doing more about women's empowerment. And I think with this selection of the role that she's taking around loans for women, I, I think just really speaks to doing what you love because I know that she was interviewing for other um, Fortune 500 CEO jobs. And for her to take this one that's really with her passion, I think that's a lesson that we can all learn. But here's another lesson. Do we women wind up sort of where we belong? Okay, we've tried to be in the Fortune 500s, but where do we really belong and our passions end up is in that not-for-profit sector? Not that, not that there's anything wrong with it and mentoring other women and mm-hmm. doing the kinds of things that she's doing now. Many people would say, well, you know what? That's where women belong to begin with. Well, you know, it, I, I think... And this is, I think, I'm not sure whether the research supports this, but I think that women are more 
self-reflective about what it is that they really want to do, and they want to be true to their values more. So I think, and especially I'm seeing this in the younger women, really searching for what it is that they can really be passionate around and doing something. And I think the something can be, it could be working in a law firm and making partner. It could be doing anything, but really doing something that fits within their values and not just something to get a paycheck. So I think that's probably the larger lesson learned. And, and, and I think that what I'm finding is women are asking more of those questions about what they really want to do, where their passion is, and how they really want to spend their time and trying to align themselves with what they're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, you mentioned younger women, and I'm always interested in that, and obviously you are a consultant to these Fortune 500 companies. Are there any that stick out in your mind, specific younger women, women in their early 30s, maybe late 30s, who are you know, climbing up this corporate ladder or have the potential to be CEOs of these big companies? Any that you've seen in your view, in your lens? Yeah, I've seen um, some terrific ones. And what I think is great is that there's so many companies now that are being more deliberate. I'm, I um, have some colleagues at PepsiCo. Um, I do a lot of work with Johnson & Johnson. And they're being more deliberate about identifying some of these women earlier on in their careers and giving them some of these experiences, especially I've talked earlier about some of these broadening ones, sending them on overseas assignments. I do a lot of work with ExxonMobil also, and they're particularly good with uh, with engineers and, and sending them you know, to some spots where they can really learn and hone their skills and, and doing it more deliberately, I think, than, than when I was growing up. So I think that the, some of these companies have just made tremendous strides and uh, just really, uh, not only women, but for, um, for African Americans, um, for U.S.-based companies that are in other parts of the world and not just looking at the Americans and moving them up, but really looking at how can we bring the Chinese um, to other parts of the world and building more global leadership, which I think is really exciting. But it's still, I mean, we're not, we're not there yet. We only have um, 5% of the women that are in CEO roles in the Fortune 500 now, which is great, but it's only 5%. So uh, we still have a long way to go, and I think it's more, again, conscious, um, deliberate choices. Are we... As you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah. are we trying to kind of put, what is it, the, the, the square peg in the round hole when we're trying to put women in corporate America? Or do you have to change, because things are changing, it is a global economy, this is a sort of an era of change, the 21st century, recreating corporate America so that some of the attributes that you described that women have to offer will fit in, rather than having the women trying to fit in, this is yeah. the way corporate America exists functions. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a great question because I, I was just on a call yesterday with a lot of colleagues who are working in this space and we said it's not just about, I think to your point, fixing women to better fit in, but it's 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 like you have to fix both men and women and you have to also fix the corporations um, because I think long gone are the traditional kind of command and control where you do everything that the boss is saying. It's, it's really moving 
what I've seen is, is we're moving more towards a whole more collaborative environment, um, more, and I'll call it kind of networked, where it's less the hierarchy, but it's more fluid. And those are some of the natural skills that women have. And so I think we're seeing that men need to develop some of these more kind of natural female skills and that women still need to de- sometimes be more assertive, speak up more. So it's everybody needs to be developing some of the skills we need for the future. And we also, I mean, the VA, um, what we've been seeing in the headlines with the VA, I mean, that's an organization that really needs to be fixed. Same with General Motors. So we, we, have, to, we have to be fixing all of these at the same time. Yeah. You talk about the concept also, we don't, we don't have that much time left, and I don't want to overlook this one, but the derailers, what dera- whether it's yeah. actually male or female. And for women, and I guess in particular for Andrea, derailment um, was that uh, being a, a people pleaser, trying to please too much, which is very typical of women. Uh, and then you describe, and I don't know if you really attach this just men, but that men tend to be, uh, they turn their competency and their ability to lead uh, turns into derailment when it becomes arrogance. So, yeah. Yeah, and um, one of the things I really spend a lot of time in in Beauty Queen is talking about this concept of derailment. And it's really, um, and I talked a little bit about it earlier, that under stress, potentially our strengths can become our biggest liabilities. And the one example that I talk about is with Andrea, she came from a typical Chinese household where harmony is great, we don't have conflict, and which that can be really good to try to get everybody to, let's say, a consensus decision, but sometimes the boss needs to be the boss and just say, we're going to go this way, even if it upsets the apple cart. And so sometimes Andrea Jung erred on the side of really wanting to please everybody and shied away from the tough calls and the tough conversations. And and that's sometimes I've seen that, and the research bears out that that's a, a trait that sometimes women have. We want to make everybody happy. And for men, and and also for women, too, that self-confidence can kind of borderline into arrogance also, and you just kind of bark out orders and tell everybody what to do. So the tip really is to understand how your strengths can become your liabilities and to really know when you need to kind of monitor yourself and sometimes put on a different set of behaviors in the situation to achieve effectiveness. Well, I would say, and sort of ending or winding up our interview, and as a social worker, perhaps every CEO, and maybe many of them do, uh, need a corporate need a corporate coach because if you want to be able to make sure, just as you've been describing, that your strengths don't become your weaknesses, and be aware of it, wouldn't it? kind of behoove each CEO to have a corporate coach? Well, most of them do. And, and, yeah. and I, and I did spend a lot of time in coaching, and I think it can be helpful, whether you call them a coach or even just somebody that can help you to hold that mirror in front of you and say, what are you doing well that's really working, and what are you doing that's getting in the way and not so good? So whether you have a formal coach or you have a trusted peer or colleague, just I think it, it, it helps everybody to really have somebody that can give you that honest feedback and, and can tell you where you need to do more of this and where you need to do less of that. 
And does it have to be somebody who's outside of the organization so that they have a, that they, you know, they have, there's a distance, an emotional distance, a physical distance, a financial distance? <laughs> I think, yeah, probably that's optimal, but, um, you know, a lot of, I'm working with one person that just really can't afford that right now. She's an entrepreneur and she'd like that, so we're trying to figure out how she can, she can have, have someone that's inside the organization that's really helpful for her. Optimally, great to have an outside third party, but there are ways that you can, you can work with inside people, but yeah, it's, it's tricky though, and you have to kind of go through it thoughtfully but as well as long as you have somebody that helps you do that that's a that's a great stride in the right direction well it's been a pleasure talking to you today and it's a great book you can buy it online bookstores everywhere beauty queen inside the reign of avon's andrea jung deborah himsel is the author former vice president at avon and uh deborah give us websites one or two or more where we can go to for more information about you the book and andrea yeah, my website is uh, himsel, H-I-M-S-E-L, and associates.com, and I keep that up to date on all the, the press around this and, and everything, and Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. It's, it's everywhere. It's so, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is great. I, I always knock on wood for that, uh, and it's uh, been, been receiving a lot of good press and a lot of good conversation, which is, I, I really appreciate your thoughtfulness on this, Catherine, a, a real dialogue about leadership and also women in leadership. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important topic. It is an important topic, and the beauty queen should reign. So uh, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author and blogger Richard Green. He's the author of, we're going to be talking about his book, Raising Children That Other People Like to Be Around. Welcome to the show, Richard. Nice to have you on this morning. Great to be on, Catherine. So, why should we care about raising children that other people like to be around? Well, in the big picture, I think that uh, it gives our society a, a better fiber and uh, in the small picture, I think it's just more convenient to be around polite people than it is to be around noisy, intrusive, interrupting little brats. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as I was thinking about that, because I've been on your blog and uh, you know, read the book, and I'm thinking, you know, but, you know, let's, for instance, you know, we've had a, few, a lot of horrific killings and, and horrible things that have happened in the past couple of years. And some of these kids who are responsible for those, how they will describe them as, you know, nice people to be around, polite, they don't talk back, they're quiet, they keep to themselves. Um, what's the difference, and obviously there is, but in raising children like that, as opposed, and you're talking about raising nice, polite kids, there has to be more to it than that. Well, I think that, you know, I think that it's important for all of us to have social skills, to be communicative, to be able to express our feelings, um, and to know that there is a way to solve problems that is short of violence. And I think that in the case of the kids who are full of anger and, uh, you know, want to get revenge or have access to... um, living out the fantasy that they have of getting even with other people, um, I think that there's got to be a safety valve that you put in your child that teaches them how to recognize that they are, um, or teaches you how to recognize that your child is is a pressure cooker and really needs to uh, vent and talk with somebody about the way they're feeling. And I think what those kids all have in common is just some very deep rage. And I think that our our job as parents is to not only uh, communicate with our children, but to teach them how to deal with the feelings of frustration that all of us have in our lives. I mean, everyone gets frustrated and angry. It's just a matter of how you convert that emotion into something productive as opposed to something hateful. Well, and you're an expert, and maybe we should have started with that because you're, and I'm an expert too. I have three grown children. You have four and married happily for 36 years. So obviously you have had the experience of raising four children uh, over a 30-year period. So, and I'm assuming this is where your interest in writing this book and, and uh, ha- has come from. So let's talk about that. Um, how do you raise these healthy How did you do it? How do you raise these four healthy children, raising children that other people want to be around? And, of course, as you say, understanding your role as a parent. What is the script for that? Well, I took the word smart, and I turned it into the script. So I said, set an example, make the rules, apply the rules, respect yourself, 
and teach in everything that you do. And understand that everything that you do teaches your child something. So in order to give parents confidence, which I think is a key element, one sits down at the set an example period and thinks about what kind of example you want to set. What were your parents like? What were the best things that they did? What were the worst things that they did? What do you want to repeat? What do you want to avoid? And you work this out with the person with whom you're parenting these children, and you decide what your values are. And once you can determine your values, um, then you can have a game plan for heading forward, and you can decide what rules really are the important rules for you. In our family, we valued telling the truth and respecting other people and taking responsibility for your behavior, which I think is a very important part of what makes crazy kids with weapons crazy kids with weapons, and then being grateful for the world that surrounds us. Um, So in in defining our rules, you know, I found when I was young that my parents had rules that only made my house a place I didn't like to be, which was, did you make your bed? Why are you such a slob? Did you get your homework done? And it was always, I was always being nagged about those things. And when I was old enough to make my bed and have my own room not in my parents' house, I was very neat. So it occurred to me that, like, well... The fact that my parents lived in a neat house sort of set an example for me that neatness is is an expectation, and I implemented it myself once I was in charge of my own life. So there are a lot of things that I think kids pick up without having to satisfy us as taskmasters every day. And then making our rules was about, well, if I want my child to tell the truth and respect other people and take responsibility, then when I make the rules, do they have to be about, um, you know, making your bed every day or keeping your room clean? Well, again, you know, I'm sorry that those were themes in my childhood that were acrimonious, but the fact is that, no, I want my children to be able to tell me the truth, and so... I created, actually my parents created a method that would alleviate any danger of being punished by being able to say, can I have an armistice? And then my answer, my parents would say yes, and that meant that I could tell them what I'd done wrong and know that I wasn't going to get punished for it in the old-fashioned spanking, immediate, tragic, angry way, that there was going to be a discussion about my transgression. And as a result, I learned to be able to tell the truth comfortably and to trust that the truth was something you could deal with. And that allowed me to take responsibility. So there, as we move through the word smart, once you apply those rules, you just have to be strong enough to recognize that your rules matter to you. If they don't matter to you as a parent, they're not going to matter to your child as the child. So Richard, when, when you talk about, and, and these I think are really important, they're I don't know that they're rules. I guess they're, they're values, you know, telling the res- truth, respecting others, right. and taking responsibility. I just want to go back because it's kind of like a, a sort of a button pusher for me when you talk about making the bed. Yeah. Um, and I've never seen any connection between those values and making a bed. I, I, I come from a fail. I never made my bed, and I still don't. I have a cleaning lady who makes the bed once a week, uh, yet I'm very responsible and have accomplished what I've accomplished, and so have my boys, and I never made them make the bed. Now, I made, there are a lot of other things that I felt was important, doing well in school, homework, uh, you know, other things that they had to obviously perform at, but making the bed wasn't, any, wasn't anything in our 
family that was required necessarily. Um, and everyone did really well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, but, I mean, that. that totally proves what I'm saying, which is yeah. that my parents valued that. And I think a lot of parents create a lot of little hurdles or hoops that their children need to jump through in order to feel as though they're good children rather than looking at those overarching values, which are, is my child an honest child? Is my child a polite child? You know, those were things that I valued about myself that got overwhelmed by my parents' need to hassle me about little things like whether I made my bed. So my wife and I decided we weren't going to hassle our kids about making their beds or having clean rooms. We would say to them, people are coming over. You should probably clean up your room because they may take a look inside and you wouldn't want them to think you're a slob. You know, the responsibility is is theirs to be who they are, and that's a reflection of them, not us. That was different than my childhood. So that set an example, aside from putting back a shopping cart or picking up a piece of litter when nobody's looking or you're asking your child to pick it up for you and put it in the trash, those sorts of things determining what really matters to you, which, as you've defined, are those very core values for me, helps you decide what rules really matter. So the rule of making a bed didn't matter in my childhood, and I don't think it's a measure of the goodness of a child. And that's sort of what I was getting at with that. So that the rules we made were based on our values. Don't lie to us. That's a rule. Don't disrespect either of us. Don't talk back to us. That's a rule. Um, Be kind to your siblings. We're not going to fight with each other in this family. That's a rule. And so those were the extensions of those values. And what you said is exactly what I meant, which is use your values to define the rules in your home. So that, that's a clarification of what I was saying. Yeah, also, in going down this list, I think one of the things that you have, the, the smart principles, mm-hmm. I think one really important one, at least in my view as, as a parent and as a social worker, I mean, respecting yourself. And I think sometimes that gets lost, particularly today. I want to talk about that one because I think that is really a core value that parents need to work on with each individual child, and it's a very can be a very different process with each child. Um, and sometimes... Some of these core values gets translated into rules that don't necessarily apply to each individual child because they are so different. Let's let's talk <laughs> about that. Well, I think that you know you've hit the nail on the head. Um, I think that up to a certain age, all of the children need to learn the same things. Yeah. And so, you know, from my point of view. What I, the reason I chose respect yourself is that I would see parents who it appeared to me were afraid their child wouldn't love them, okay? That were afraid, they wanted to be their child's friend and they didn't understand the value and the importance of being a leader. And for me, being a leader reduces the anxiety that our children have because they don't have to worry about things that they're not equipped to worry about. I have an analogy that is if you were to get into a taxi cab and ask a driver to take you to the airport and the driver were to say to you, I don't know how to get to the airport, but I'll give it my best shot, you would be very nervous in the backseat of that cab because you were being driven by somebody who didn't know where they were going. Well, our children are in the back of our cab, and I believe that it's important for them to know that we know our way to the airport. And if we don't know our way to the airport, we know how to find the airport, and we can teach them how to do that, but that we have the confidence to never 
be afraid to get them where they need to go. And in that way, they get more and more comfortable getting into the cab. They begin to understand that you know where you're going. They begin to understand that you have the answers to the questions that they're wondering about. And that opens up a dialogue between you about how to solve problems in life. So in respecting yourself, it's very important to understand that you have a a large lifetime jump on your child. You know, let's say you're 23, 24, 25, maybe you're 19, I don't know, maybe you're 40 and you've just had a child. Well, that's 40 years of life experience that that child doesn't have. And so for one to consult with their child when the child is three about whether it's bedtime makes no sense to me. You know, you're an adult, you know it's bedtime. And to believe that is a very important part of the process. Well, what you're saying is, and I, I do agree with you, I think we could say from one to four or zero to four, there are certain rules that apply to all of your children. You don't yeah. put your hand on this. Nobody puts their hand on a hot stove or sticks their finger in the plug that right. electrical exactly. outlet or goes outside by themselves unattended by an adult. And it's and even though the kids have different temperaments, the rules really apply. They're the same. But it gets more and more complicated as they get older. And that's kind of that's what I'd like to talk to you about because right. then the rules do become they're they're more they are not exactly the same for each kid. You may have a kid who is uh, extremely bright, interested in music, and you know another kid who who is an athlete, and so it changes. I think that's when it becomes difficult. For parents, you know, they talk about children. It's middle school is very hard, but I think it's also just as hard for parents or who guardians or partners, whoever's raising the, the children, and um, because it really does get complex, particularly today. So let's. Well, in middle school is a very, very difficult time. Yeah. I would say that you know one of the slogans I've created in the book is that it's easier to lighten up than it is to tighten up. And so when you start with your children and you teach them those basic rules and you teach them fundamentally that you respect yourself, then as they get older, they respect you and they, they counsel with you about what it is that's concerning them. So even as they develop individually, you have a relationship with each of them that has the very same moral foundation. And what I've found as my children have grown to be even older is that they consult with each other now, much more than they consult with me, for example, or with my wife about what's going on in their lives because they can count on each other. So I've I've made a big leap between them being infants or toddlers and their being adults, but throughout this process of middle school, as long as they understand that you are a fair person, you're a loving person, you will listen to them, they're going to talk to you about what concerns them. And the athlete is going to be concerned about whether or not they're getting to be the starter or whether you know what it feels like when their team loses. And I wish that Johnny was a better player because he's really screwing us up. And each one of those discussions is an opportunity to train each of those children individually in both their weaknesses and their strengths. And to address with them the things that worry you about them and their lives. One may want to eat more. One may be lazier. But the key is that each one of them requires certain custom tailoring uh, as they get older. But the foundation of building the ability to communicate with them, having them have faith in you and your knowledge and your ability to solve problems with and for them emotionally gives you the ability, gives you the strength in the relationship to keep that door open and to counsel them appropriately no matter what their interests are. You know, we have 
three boys and a girl. Well, the girl isn't like the boys, you know, obviously. And she has different needs emotionally and different needs. She was very able to concentrate for long periods of time and the boys weren't. And so we did have to custom tailor almost everything we did with each child. But they all had the same basic emotional scaffolding, which was my parents love me because I am respectful and I am a good person. I think that's very well said, and I like that custom tailor because I think that's really critical. That is important. Sometimes parents tend to put them all in the same kind of boat, I guess, and treat them the same, and it doesn't always, and I don't think that works. So I, I, I custom tailor, I think, is a good word. I think another thing is you talk about parents making good choices, and it's really critical to help them see that they are capable of making good choices themselves and that you respect their choices. I mean, I think that, and, and, and make, give them or help them to acquire good feelings of self-esteem, but that their choices are important too and that there are consequences to the decisions that they make. Um, and I think sometimes that gets overlooked. You know, it's really interesting. There are a couple of things that popped up in my mind as we were talking. One of them is that there are a lot of parents who make excuses for their children for various reasons. Well, you know, he doesn't like the color red, so he can't really function in that room. Or, yeah. you know, the label on his pants was really bothering him, so he acted. Or he's had too much sugar to eat, so he's just a crazy banshee. It's like, you know, those are excuses for for not breaking the rules, but for bending what are your expectations. And the answer to that is that if you continue to make those excuses, you'll always make them, that you have to have a high expectation of your child. And I think that that's a valuable tool for parents. I think that that fundamental uh, expectation is a, a very important thing, and it applies in all levels of life. And I think our children earn more and more responsibility. My mother used to say to us, if you send your child, you know, if you say you have to go to your room, then what you ought to also say is go to your room until you're ready to come back. When you're ready to come back and join the the family, then come back. And that put the responsibility on the child to make that decision, and it allowed us to not be the jailer. You know, I don't want to have to keep track of my child's punishment. You have a 10 minutes in the corner. Now I've got to look at a clock and time 10 minutes. It's like, go think about what you're doing. We do not behave that way in this family. So offering the child the responsibility for their behavior is very important. And then another thing that my wife taught me is, be a positive parent. Um, you know, appreciate the things your children do for you when they least expect it. You know, ambush them with something kind. Like, I really like the way you're sitting and doing your homework. I really think that that's good. I really like the way you two boys are playing together nicely. I really like it when you help your teacher at school. I think that was a very generous thing for you to do. Whatever it is that you can see, that you can find and praise, that is the kind of thing that allows your child to feel good about themselves versus constant critique and criticism, which, you know, from my point of view was what I experienced in my life, which was, I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you to make you a better person. And it didn't really make me a better person. It just allowed my parent to get off their chest with what was making them, uh, you know, upset with my, at that time, sort of ADD class clowny behavior. But the bottom line was, Fundamentally, I was the kid that they wanted me to be. I was honest. I was respectful. Uh, you know, I might have been a little funnier than other kids, but I took responsibility for my behavior, and I was grateful for the life that I had. Yeah, I think uh, you, the comment that you just made, you know, don't, you're telling kids what, uh, 
what they shouldn't do to make them a better person rather than telling them what I think this is sort of what your wife was, I guess, her advice of, of just telling them what's good about them that makes them a better person. I mean, I have my kids, I have a different relationship with each one of them, and a, a, we have a great relationship, but, you know, one of them always, he always makes me laugh, and, and I, since he was a kid, and even when I'm feeling bad and I could say to him, you know, you're, I always feel, not always, but, you know, you have the ability to make me laugh, and that's a really good thing. Uh, so, yeah, you want to pick out those things that, that uh, the positive, not necessarily the negative. But also I want to comment on what you said about the adversity thing, and I think this is an unfortunate trend today, parents protecting their kids and, and even not wanting them to experience adversity in, in an appropriate context that leads them to be able to do that as they get older. I mean, I, I, I'll give you an example with one of my boys, or all three of them really, you know, if they got in, they had different tracks and different teachers, and I can't tell me how many times I would get a call from another mother, oh, what, what track is Johnny in, and, and that track isn't a good track, are you going to change it? Because it, and I never did, I mean, unless something obviously was horrific was going on, they have to learn to deal with a teacher that they may not like because there are plenty of people they're going to meet when they graduate who they don't like and who don't like them. Not everybody likes you. Um, and I think all of that sort of getting like lost in the parent-child uh, relationship today. I see well, a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, and even to the extent that people put turnbuckles on the corners of their furniture. I mean, yeah, it, it comes down to that. It's like, how do you teach a child to protect themselves if you never let them get hurt? And, you know, I just, my daughter is about to turn 19. When my kids turn 18, I give myself a year to write them a note that is about life and my evaluation of their lives. And in this daughter's note, you know, what I, I had to say is she's perfect academically. She can handle herself in a situation. She's a doll. We love her. She's amazing. But the one thing I can't protect her from is the fact that someday somebody's going to break her heart and that there is disappointment in life. And so what I've tried to do is tell her that, you know, every break of her heart is going to teach her something. Every disappointment we have teaches us something about ourselves. And it's very important. That's a very important thing for children to understand. And it begins at having to share a toy that you might not want to share or having to, you know, having a kid hit you or losing a game. I mean, it's very important. These are coping skills. This is a very important part of life is learning how to get up and dust yourself off and get back into the game. It's not about having somebody coddle you and protect you. And I believe that those parents do their children a disservice, as you just said, because they create this false sense of the world and that is that everybody's here to help you and life is going to be wonderful. And that is what people say now about millennials in the workplaces is that they think that they should get a bonus because they show up. And, you know, life is a lot more, it's, it's much more about getting knocked down and getting back up than it is about just showing up for the game. Yeah, I, I agree. And that is one of the problems, I guess, with the, with the millennials. Um, this whole concept that you know the whole world loves you and and that you're terrific and uh, and uh, it's not true. Um, we only have about a minute left, so what do we want to leave the audience with? Because you have a blog which I was reading, which I think is a parenting blog, which is terrific. Um, and it's it's called yeah. Common Sense Dad, and I am Common Sense Dad. And what happens is every once in a while I get some ideas or I observe something in in my life, and I try and turn that into well, what what is what matters to me 
me as a parent in this situation. And so that's what I do with Common Sense Dad. I'm on Twitter as Common Sense Dad. I'm on Instagram as Common Sense Dad. I have a Facebook page, Common Sense Dad. So basically, that's where I can be found on a day-to-day basis. And my book is really about having parents realize that inside them is enough... 30 seconds we have left. (laughs) Okay. Inside them is enough information to have the confidence they need to be strong parents. Well, Richard, thanks so much for being on the show, Raising Children That Other People Like to Be Around, Common Sense Dad. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Take care. Yep. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 